Welcome to Pandemic Ethics, a podcast dedicated to the defining ethical challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your host, Joshua Price. My guest today is Joan Tronto, professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. In this episode, we discuss the importance of care and care workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. What ways can we reform our institutions to both overcome care deficits and combat the inequalities that result from what remains of our gendered division of labor? Please join us. Welcome to Pandemic Ethics. I'm your host, Joshua Price, professor of philosophy at Minnesota State University, Mankato, and the author of Just Work for All, The American Dream in the 21st Century, which is available from Rutledge. The COVID-19 pandemic makes vivid the importance of care and care work, including unpaid care work, but also the paid labor of doctors and nurses, nursing home staff, child care providers, workers in education, food delivery workers, and so on. Work that is essential for our survival and human flourishing. It also reveals that those who provide this essential work are often among the more vulnerable and powerless members in society. The topic for today's podcast is, does our politics and policy reflect the importance of care work and how might it better do so? To discuss these issues, I am delighted to welcome Joan Toronto to the Pandemic Ethics Podcast. Toronto is Emeritus Professor of Political Science at the University of Minnesota and one of the world's foremost experts in the ethics and politics of care. She is the author of numerous books, chapters, and articles on the subject, including Caring Democracy, Markets, Equality, and Justice. Joan, it is a great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. It's my pleasure, Josh. Uh, for, for more than a decade, uh, people across academic disciplines, but also outside the academy, have worried about what sometimes is called a caring deficit. That is, that the demands of contemporary life leave too little time to care for children or the elderly, the infirmed, and even ourselves. So for listeners who might not be as familiar with these discourses, can you say a little bit about this deficit and why people are concerned? Sure. Actually, people have been talking about a caring deficit or something like it for a very long time. Um, We used to say the work-family balance or the work-life balance. But I actually prefer to use the language of caring deficit because what's interesting about work-family or work-life is that life is very fuzzy, but work is very specific. Mm -hmm. And that actually reflects something about what this deficit means. In our society, work gets first call. It gets first call for people's time. It gets first call for people's intelligence, for their uh, capacities in every way. And what happens after that gets left over and the care gets left over. So simply put, how much we value economic activity in our society is very high and how much we value care is very low. Traditionally, care work has been left to those in, you know, really at the bottom of society, whether this is uh, people of color or women or people in a lower caste in caste societies. The people who end up doing care work, what Evan, Evelyn Nakano Glenn calls being forced to care, are the people usually at the bottom of society. Now, the care deficit has different effects for different places in our economy. For poor workers, they have to work longer hours to escape economic precarity, just to provide basics for their families. For more well-to-do workers, they also have to work longer and harder in order for them to keep up with the Joneses and for them to have everything they think they need economically. But notice that if you're wealthy, you can also use your extra wealth to buy care, usually at bargain basement prices, uh, which again just increases the economic difficulties for those at the bottom. So the caring deficit affects everyone. When you put it together in aggregate, it makes it very bad for people at the bottom of society. Can you say a little bit more about what counts as uh, care work, either sort of uh, paid care labor or unpaid labor? Well, you've already noticed the first important distinction, which is that both paid care work and unpaid care work are called care work. And then we come to this question, well, what makes the difference? Is it just that one's paid and one isn't? So if that's the case, how are we going to distinguish them? What's going on here? So back early already in the 1980s, feminists began to use the term care ethics 
And it's a little broader than care work, but I want to come back to care work after we talk a little bit about care ethics. So Berenice Fisher and I defined care this way. On the most general level, care is a species activity that includes everything that we do to maintain, continue, and repair the world so that we may live in it as well as possible. Now, philosophers, for the most part, hate this definition. <laughs> they hate it because it's way too broad, right? Everything seems to be care by this account. So suppose you make a bed for your 10-year-old. Um, is that care or is it work? You know, these boundaries are so difficult to figure out. But for me, part of what is useful about our broad definition is just that it makes it clear that care is really part of almost everything that we do in our lives. Much of our lives as humans is about caring, and we don't pay it sufficient attention. So that's why I think it's important to keep this definition quite so broad. But then Berenice Fisher and I specified four phases of care to help us see more clearly what care actually is, and this, I think, helps. So the first phase of care is caring about that is, we first have to recognize that there are needs that need to be met. You just changed the baby's diaper. You saw right. <laughs> You somehow came to know there was a need. Um, second, we have to allocate care and responsibilities. We have to figure out, well, okay, here are all these care jobs that have to get done. Who's going to do which ones, when, how, with what resources? Thirdly, we actually do the caring work we have to do. And fourthly, we have to do some care receiving. That is, we have to assess whether or not the care work that was done met the needs. And chances are good that it will have maybe it met some of those needs, but that creates new needs. And so there's a constant ongoing process of all these phases mixed together. So care work is part of this, right? But it, there are also some other specific things we can say about care work uh, and ways we can distinguish it. First of all, we need to distinguish between care that is personal and face-to-face -face care. It's what Lorraine McCreary calls um, engaged care. That is, it's you, you changing your baby's diaper. Right. But there's also something called extended care, which deals with such issues as um, the way care plays out in a society. Um, since we're using diapers as our starting example. Yeah, I, I realized uh, the, the powerful impact of our, our pre-episode uh, discussion about uh, my uh, familiar, li familiar life the last half hour. But yeah, continue, Joe. Yeah, but just think, if if there weren't diapers available for you to use, um, you'd have to allocate the care work very differently. Or if you use one kind of diaper or another kind of diaper, it has a different impact on the, on the economy and, for that matter, on the environment. So these questions of care start really local, but they quickly extend very far. So that's one distinction that we can make about care work. So it's paid and unpaid. It's extended or engaged. And here's another distinction that's really important to keep in mind. And it's the discussion, the distinction that Mignon Duffy called the difference between nurturant care and non-nurturant care. So nurturant care is what we think of when we put ourselves in the position of, I'm such a great human because I'm a caregiver. And it's the kind of stuff that happens directly in helping people to be, you know, better people, feeding the baby, holding the patient's hand, that kind of care. But there's also a lot of care that's non-nurturant. And this is the care, again, that we tend to push off onto others. Washing the hospital's laundry, staffing the uh, morgue, those are real jobs that have to be done. But they aren't the ones we think of when we think of the caregiver as somehow a person who has um, ethical value in what they do. There's also ethical value in this non-nurturant care, in delivering stuff, in cleaning up after us, and all those works too. So that's what care work is. It's a really broad, broad idea. With this sort of expansive definition, it seems that, you know, a, a lot of, you know, providing needs for people itself is uh, care work, including economic needs. So when we, in what sense then uh, is there a deficit of care? Are there particular aspects of this care that are just not being met compared to other things which are also, you know, essential for people to have what they need but are actually being very well met in our institutions? 
some care needs are being well met for some people in some places at some times, right? But not everyone's needs are being met. Let's start with uh, one of the most basic care needs, safety. Not everyone in our culture has the same sense of safety. Some people are to use the phrase of a new report that just came out about the Minneapolis police, over-policed but Mm under-protected. That's not good care. That's kind of care, but it's not very good care. Think about um, the fact that somewhere about one, I think the data is one in five American children at the present moment is food insecure. That's a caring deficit, right? And so all of these deficits show up in different places in our culture as a result of ongoing, very different processes of how we mostly meet care needs. And because we always, or not always, but very often use the market as a way to distribute goods in our society, and since we tend to think of care as if it were a good to be distributed, we end up with people who are relatively well-off economically have a smaller care deficit than people who are not well-off. This point was made actually already 20 years ago by an epidemiologist named Jody Heyman, um, who wrote this wonderful book called The Widening Gap, Why America's Working Families Are in Jeopardy and What Can Be Done About It. I mean, she wrote this book 20 years ago, and she pointed out that simple things like whether or not your job provides you with a personal day has a huge impact on your ability to care for your family. So suppose you're a parent who has a kid in school, you get called to a teacher-parent conference, and you have no personal days. So if you take a day off from work, you lose your very small salary in order to, or hourly wage probably, to go to the school. Are you going to show up at the school? Probably not. And then what are they going to think at that school? Oh, here's another parent who doesn't care about their kid. Right. Uh, we can ignore this kid. We don't have to take this kid so seriously. So all of these deficits of care have a tendency to uh, compound one another. And they really do have an effect then of making it very difficult for those who are less well off uh, to care as well as those who are more resourced. Right. Very well put. But one might be inclined to think with respect to some of these uh, particularly essential nurture care uh, type activities that, you know, really to each their own is the appropriate way to respond to them, at least from a a public policy perspective. You know, you might even ground it in a kind of uh, liberal uh, distinction, uh, you know, traditional liberal distinction between public and private. You say like, you know, what people decide whether or not to have kids, people have a responsibility to their family. Um, and it's and so they should decide how well or poorly to meet that. Uh, conversely, you know, you might say if I don't have a child, uh, I shouldn't be expected to pay for uh, the care of your children, or I shouldn't uh, step up to fill in if you fail to care for your family members or your your parents. Well, um, can you say a little bit more about why that's a problem, or why that itself might lead to a deficit of care? Yeah, that's a so. <laughs> What's interesting to me about your question, Josh, is it already shows all the ways in which a care perspective is so different from a more mainstream uh, approach to these ethical questions. Um, So first, before any human being can make a choice like, oh, I chose not to have children, so I shouldn't have to pay for them. um, That person has already received thousands of hours of other people's care for them to have survived to the point where they can even say, I have a choice. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's true that not only when we are infants, but every day of our lives, none of us can or do care for ourselves all of the time. It's just impossible for us to do that. And since able-bodied adults do provide a lot of self-care, we often miss the point that we're all care receivers all the time. So when I say I have a choice not to care, Mm -hmm. what I'm really saying is I've decided to limit the realm of my care to, say, myself or my family or my childless family, however you want to put it. If you choose not to have children, that doesn't take you out of the extensive systems of care that made your life and the life of everyone else around you possible. 
And if you think your life would be the same or as rich, if you had just said, oh, everyone should make this choice and not have children because they're too much of a burden, I think you see that you're wrong. Because even if we want to put this in a choice framework, enlightened self-interest tells us, as Nancy Fulbright puts it, that children are a public good, not a private possession. To a certain extent, uh, the question is motivated not to convince me, um, but to, uh, to, to sort of set up a, a common uh, response I receive, uh, not just teaching uh, the ethics right. and politics of care and courses, but also from colleagues, um, you know, across genders, which is, you know, complaining or worrying about the ways in which uh, colleagues are, say, for example, uh, taken away from various sorts of uh, work priorities. And this is a pretty privileged uh, collection, but taken away. Yeah from work priorities to do things like change diapers or to make school meetings and how you can't, you may not be able to be there for a sort of in-time scheduling. Uh, academia is pretty flex, uh, comparatively flexible. One can conduct their life successfully in the academy in a lot of ways with a more flexible schedule than say uh, in corporate law, for example. But you, you still receive those kinds of complaints that the this, this sense that if you're providing care work, um, you are in a way free riding on those who aren't uh, at the workplace. And I think this sort of underlines what you've talked about, which is this complete uh, sort of either false consciousness, you might say, about who does and, and who does not benefit from care work, but also this sort of orientation to treat the care work as, as secondary. Yeah, there's another side of that, which is, so let's say we're going to talk about um, this example of the academy. There's been a fair amount of research that shows that many more women remain childless in the academy um, than would have had they not had that job. That is, when you interview women and you ask them about their academic careers, they will say one of the things they regret is that they didn't have children. Um, Now, what kind of a just society would have that as one of the requirements for any kind of a job position that you had to make the decision, I won't have children in order for you to succeed at your career. What would be a much more just solution rather than having people fight against each other at the level of you're not at that department meeting is not only to reorganize the department meeting time, but to think again about the ways in which we organize and, and just automatically give in to these work demands, which are excessive and um, kind of out of whack. Uh, I don't know about you, but as an academic, I'm retired now, but as an academic, I work considerably more than 40 hours a week. Right. And um, the proposals that people are making about making more societies more caring cut the number of work hours down to 30 or even fewer. Could we be academics if we work 30 hours a week? Not if we were going to publish as much as we do and teach as many classes as we do, but there would be ways to organize academic work, all kinds of work. There's been work done on corporate law, for example, about how you could organize corporate law so that it would be more family-friendly. And if that's our goal as a society, then we could do it. And creating uh, more flexible work hours as this sort of double service of both helping people to better meet the care and better to recognize the importance of care work, but also of not creating inequalities based on who provides that care work, right? So if you make the more flexible schedule, you also sort of, you know, come back and address these gender inequalities in care, right? So you either, you know, help either militate against uh, inequalities uh, that come from a gender division of labor or perhaps ultimately uh, change the the nature of that division of labor, hopefully. Right, right. But here's a piece of that. Care takes time. There's no way around that. You can't make care more efficient the way you can make uh, widgets production on a factory line more productive. You just can't take the time out of care. Then it's no longer care. So there's got to be a crunch somewhere, and I think the crunch means that we have to think seriously about cutting back on work. The fight for the 40-hour work week happened, you know, almost 200 years ago, began almost 200 years ago. And maybe it's time for us to rethink whether or not we still need 40 hours of work from workers in order for us to have a survivable economy. It may be that we can cut back to, say, 20 hours a week and still have workable economies, but provide people, all people, men and women, more time to do more care. 
Is that a proposal that uh, is seen to be something that makes sense from a, just from a comparatively wealthy economy? Is that something that translates well to global economic policy? Could you say a little bit more about the concerns or constraints for, for that uh, approach? Mostly, when I've thought about it, I've thought of it from relatively wealthy economies. When Jenny Nadelsky, who's writing a book on this called Part-Time for All, along with her colleague Tom Mallison, thinks about it, she's thinking about it from a wealthy economy perspective. But you could also say that um, creating caring economies in wealthy countries would lead to creating caring economies in less wealthy countries. People in... Poorer people have to work more now, but there isn't a reason why we couldn't share wealth more on a global scale so that they wouldn't have to work as many hours again in order for them to do their basic care work. Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to begin to generalize this to a global level, but even on a local level, if we begin to think about the fact that people are doing a lot of unpaid care work, they're doing... They're paying for other people's care work. They're doing their own work, whether it's care work or not. There's an awful lot of time, right, that humans have. It's really a capacity for humans to think systematically about how they want the economy to work. It's definitely the case that if someone doesn't, if we don't think about this priority or don't sort of understand how we're all profiting from that, then again, I'm already uh, using market verbiage to talk about it, how we're all already benefiting from care, uh, in some cases, not getting enough of it, you know, you're never going to think creatively about how to who, how better to realize it. That's, that's definitely the case. Yeah. And so this is uh, on some level, you know, I always think when I'm talking about care, that I'm talking about some far off utopia. But in truth, the real utopia, as Carl Polanyi argued in his book, The Great Transformation, is to think that the free market meets all of our needs, right? It doesn't. And um, no, we need to think market. about care more systematically. In any number of different ways. I mean, you, yeah, yeah. You, know, you, can, uh, you know, you can create a market where you heavily subsidize certain care deficits. Um, and right. case, it might be more effective of meeting some needs than others, right? And there's not just this uh, sort of like blanket, the market that, uh, that, uh, that addresses things. And certainly the profit motive um, isn't necessarily structured to meet all of our needs effectively, as I would think any anyone, no matter how pro-market they are, um, uh, would recognize. In what ways does the pandemic, what way does the pandemic underline this importance of care work? I think some people are noticing in a number of different contexts that it does. But then in what ways does our public policy and maybe focus on the United States here uh, reflect or fail to reflect this importance? Yeah, well, it's true that I'm I'm both optimistic and pessimistic about the outcome of the pandemic and its effect on care work. On the one hand, it has made visible the importance of care work in a way that nothing else has, right? Mm-hmm. That we need doctors and nurses, but also home health care workers, transportation workers, food service workers, uh, orderlies. Again, the launderers in the in the in the hospitals. All of these folks are providing care, and we don't usually we never even notice it. But the fact that we've noticed it now, and some people have begun to say, "Wow, look at all those people have done. How unfair is it that people who are relatively high in the economic order get to make a decision to stay home and work, like?" You do. Mm -hmm. Um, But people who are driving a bus, they've got to show up whether they want to or not and whether or not the people who get on the bus are willing to wear a mask or not. So it seems kind of an issue of justice there about how unfairly people who have to do intimate care work end up being exposed to more risk than people who are relatively well off. But... I'm not optimistic that that will necessarily make change. It it is the case that, um, you know, lots of people have begun to say, as um, Andrew Cuomo did, that Joe Biden did in the campaign, build back better. But to really build back better from a care perspective is going to require a lot of change. In the United States, we do not have some of the most basic um, 
provisions that other higher income countries all around the world have that make it possible for people to carry on their care work and their paid labor work um, at the same time. For example, we don't have a family allowance, a payment that helps parents to support their children uh, in for, for every family. Uh, we don't have a good, universal, f- affordable or care health care system for everyone. Virtually every other high-income country provides families with a good amount of time for vacations, paid vacations, as well as paid necessary family care. Now, the Biden platform includes some of these provisions, right, for paid family care leave. But it seems to me this is the minimum we need to do to catch up to where the other high-income countries already are. And beyond that, there are lots of provisions that we could make that would help us to create a caring economy. Could you maybe say a little bit more about that, maybe? And also, you're sure. free to compare and contrast with, because uh, Biden, both during the campaign and, and more recently, has highlighted uh, a number of proposals related to health care and early childhood education. So maybe say a little bit more about what yeah. you propose and to the extent that which Biden's proposals seem to, uh, I guess, overlap. Yeah, I think what Biden's proposal proposed so far fits completely with what I would propose, but it doesn't, of course, go far enough. The American way of um, thinking about all of these forms of care as if they're separate, child care is separate from elder care, is separate from uh, health care, is separate from care for the disabled, is a way that I don't think in the long run makes sense. You have to kind of think of all of these aspects of care pulled together. Housing is a care issue, right? If people don't have a secure place to live, they don't have um, the basic needs of care met. So there are all kinds of ways. If people aren't educated properly, it's they're not going to be able to be good caregivers as they um, take on more caring roles in the society. So there are all kinds of ways in which um, we could do better. The um, their group. There, what's interesting to me is there have been at least five or six reports in the last year. One from Oxfam, one from the United Nations Women's uh, Group, UN Women. It's called another one from a group in the United Kingdom called Women's Budget Group, and they created a report earlier this year called "Creating a Caring Economy: A Call to Action." And they define a caring economy as a caring economy means acting together to improve well-being rather than to maximize economic growth, period. So it's kind of an interesting idea that we would say the goal of the economy is, you know, the economy is a human creation. And as such, we could change it. And if we change it, we can say the goal of the economy should be to make sure that everybody's well-being is improving rather than to maximize economic growth. In our culture, we think that if if we make growth go up, then all boats rise, right? But they don't all rise, and they don't all rise at the same level. So if you switch the economy around to think about, is it helping everybody to do their care work and get the care they need better, you would really change how the economy operates. So... They would say that you need to invest in social and physical infrastructure. You'd need to reduce the amount of paid work, create a wage floor that reflects the real cost of living. I'm quoting from their report. Invest in social security and invest in and provide enough good child care. You would have to review tax systems to generate enough revenue. You would have to work to a trade system that is socially and economically sustainable. And they want to add, you'd have to create an international economic system that would support caring economies as well. So there are lots of things that once we started to do this, we would make a lot of changes. But this takes us back to the other question about the nature of democracy, right? Right. Because right now we have a country that's called a democracy, but it's a far cry from uh, any ideal of democracy. I mean, we are all excited that 67% of Americans voted in this presidential election. It's the highest turnout, you know, in a century. But it means that one third of eligible voters still didn't vote. And so if you want to put it this way, Biden won about a third, Trump won about a third, and nobody won about a third. Right. People are disengaged from politics because it doesn't seem to have any bearing on their daily lives. 
Right. Well, you they're doing, Caring Democracy yeah. too talked about. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt and just kind of, kind of, kind of. No, go ahead. Your book, uh, Caring Democracy, uh, you ta- you link this uh, caring deficit to a democratic deficit. Could you maybe say a little bit more about why these are are so connected, and maybe policies that or you know sort of orientations that would specifically address these uh, related issues? Yeah. Well, politically, people who are recipients and who have been thought who think of themselves as dependents are much less likely to participate politically and Susan Suzanne Mettler in her recent books has stressed this that people who think of themselves as people who receive say food stamps think that they don't have any role to play in politics truth be told who would be a better person to tell us how to make the food stamp system work effectively than the recipients right. but they aren't asked because they're thought of as dependent and therefore not independent, not um, full citizens, and therefore not worthy of consulting on these questions. One of the things about attaching care and democracy together is that it would make us ask everybody who is receiving care, so what about the care you're getting? Is it good? How can we improve it? Do you get enough? The caregivers. Um, What about the way you have to do your care work? Is it good? Would you improve it? Is there some part of your care work that you don't think you should have to do? Then let's talk about that. Uh, Democracy requires us to think about everybody being equal and not able to buy their way out of bad situations because they have more money than other people. And if we think of it that way, then we begin to see that when you can't do enough caring for your own self and your own family, you get in this situation of a vicious circle where you're trying harder and harder always just to care for yourselves. And often caring for yourselves comes at the expense of caring for others. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we created an economy where everybody's basic caring needs were met or could be met or were more or less met, there wouldn't be as much anxiety and precarity and I dare say hatred and, and um, pointing fingers at others about you're getting more than me because everybody would feel safe enough to consider the questions of whether or not they were meeting their own responsibilities, over meeting their own responsibilities, where they were pushing too much work off onto, say, women in households or pushing too much work off onto poorly paid care workers and so on. In your answer there, you mentioned uh, what what came to me to sort of see is almost like you need to to put care or a metric of care is, you know, essential to the cost benefit analysis that we have for any major policy change. Right. So how is it going to impact who is the care people receive, who provides it, the distribution of care and so on and so forth. My next question was going to take a different metric for thinking perhaps about uh, at least how to measure inequality, which is not inequality in care, but, you know, inequality in terms of wealth and income. But one thing we've noticed the past several decades, uh, sort of a series of transformations in our economy, and they're not natural or inevitable, but they are driven by technology and other trends, but also by changes in our politics, is that our economies become increasingly winner take all, right? Where, uh, you know, uh, where a smaller percentage of the population is is getting the lion's share of the fruits of economic growth. Uh, And uh, even with growth, then uh, many others are living uh, in a more precarious uh, financial situation and then the pandemic we're seeing massive debt among other things as a result of that these sorts of inequalities are they themselves a crisis of care is there a way to address the care issue without fundamentally addressing the the distribution of market-based rewards in the economy I don't think so I think that the economy needs to change and as, as you were just suggesting a minute ago actually it's part of the UK women's budget group's proposal, but something I've been thinking about as well, that public policy should have a care impact statement. But we'll we'll come back to that. But a winner-take-all economy, among other things, distorts needs. And there's no way you can see what people's real needs are if you have a winner-take-all economy. Think for a moment about PPE, okay? There wasn't, and for that matter, there still isn't enough personal protective equipment in the United States. People in hospitals are still saying, we don't have enough masks, we don't have enough gowns, we don't have enough uh, sani wipes. Now, how could it be in the, you know, the largest economy in the world, in the healthcare system that calls itself the best in the world, that you don't have enough of the most 
basic supplies available? Well, it's because it's not that people haven't noticed this shortage. There are reports going back a decade that say, oh my gosh, if there's a pandemic, we're not going to have enough of this basic stuff. But it just wasn't profitable enough in a winner-take-all economy to bother with it and to provide it. That, to me, is a, a really clear example of how the economic growth profit motive is not necessarily going to be compatible with the care motives. What humans need is adequate care. And if we were able to kind of bring a refocused or rebalanced way of thinking about what is it that would help us do the basic care that we need to do, we would really change and, and we would really change the economy. Now, I'm not saying we would adopt a socialist economy. Frankly, socialists can be just as bad on this question as um, capitalists. What it does mean, though, is that we would stop and think about where the economic value was going. And as they said, improving well-being rather than maximizing economic growth or economic profit is the way to think about this. The ethics of care statement or standard, what, what, what might be a way to implement this? Or, or if you could suggest a metric that you're, you, know, uh, you would hand to policymakers and say, like, look, anytime you do a major uh, uh, policy reform or even think about a reform, right? You, here are the concerns. Here is how you would measure whether or not people's care needs are being met. Here is the sort of standard you should apply. Yeah, well, I don't have all the details of that worked out, but the first thing you would do is you'd start actually at the bottom and talk about how much unpaid care work and how much paid care work already exists in the economy. And then you'd think about whether or not there's a just distribution of those things. From there, you might then want to go on and think about what kinds of care needs do people have that are not being met. And you can find that out pretty easily by looking at and asking people about those needs. Uh, here's some examples. Anne Case and Angus Deaton have recently written a book called Deaths of Despair, in which they talk about um, the limits of capitalism. And what they mean by deaths of despair are people who are dying of opioid overdoses, alcoholism, uh, suicide, because they're just, their lives are desperate in some fundamental ways. So there's a measure when those deaths of despair are happening, you know you're living in a society that's not making adequate care provision for everybody. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be the person who sits down and says, okay, here's the steps, the next six steps uh, of what we should do. Because what I think we need to do is recognize that everybody has responsibilities for care and we need to have a political... And, a political frame in which people can actually talk about those questions rather than um, the kinds of things that people talk about in politics at the present moment, some of which are not all that um, central to what's actually happening to in human people's lives, or which are dictated, as many political scientists have pointed out, dictated by the interests and needs of the wealthy who then carry those their needs out into the economic order. Right. You mentioned that. So I don't have, I'm sorry, I don't have a really uh, no problem. good. Well, you're not here to solve all of the world's problems. We're, uh, Thanks. We're, uh, we're, <laughs> we're just, uh, you know, but I, I, you know, I always want to, if I, if I get uh, one of the, uh, you know, sort of the great experts on a particular issue uh, in conversation with me in the podcast or other, I want to explore whatever they might, uh, they might have to yeah. say. Um uh, about that, you mentioned the uh, great book by uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton on Deaths of Despair, a work that also figures prominently in my own analysis in uh, Just Work for All. This raises an interesting question about care, community, and justice. We might distinguish between policies that try to further justice by providing a more level playing field. For example, to enable the next generation in communities hit hard by recent trends, devastated communities to leave for education or better opportunities elsewhere. The policies, in other words, that are quite consistent with a winner-take-all economy. Or we might favor policies that instead try to address low-paid, precarious work directly. That is, don't presuppose that people will or should uh, leave their communities for better opportunities, but instead uh, give people better support right where they are. It seems that the orientation toward care 
provides reason to favor the latter, that is. And there are lots of ways of drawing this distinction. It gives us reason to favor policies that help create what uh, Martin Sandbu calls an economy of belonging, that is, where prosperity is more broadly distributed geographically as well, rather than just uh, the, just furthering opportunity in general. Does that, does that seem to make sense to you? It does. I mean, whenever I try to think more systematically about how we would make care part of our lives more generally, I like to think in terms of what kinds of responsibilities are we encouraging and what kinds of irresponsibilities are we encouraging. The privileged in our society have lots of irresponsibility. They don't do lots of things. And this idea of uh, it hasn't worked out for you in this place. It's a bummer. Why don't you pick up and move somewhere else? Seems to me to be a kind of classic example of an irresponsibility (laughs) rather than taking responsibility for the place where you are and doing what you can there. So yeah, what you'd want to do is support people. um, And ideally, what you'd want to do is support people to be where they are or to leave, whichever turns out to be best for them. And another thing about care that's important is that all of us would not want to be cared for in the same way or to give care in the same way. And we really wouldn't want anyone to dictate to us who we have to care for or how, right? So even when we use the family, which is usually the starting point for the care provision in our society, if the government were to say, okay, look, we can't afford this. Why don't we just say all old people have to live with their children? And if you don't have any children, you get to live, I don't know, on the street. And it's your fault. Remember that choice you made a long time ago? Yeah. Wrong one. <laughs> so it, it, what we could do is say uh, say that, right? But think how um, bad that would be for so many people. It would be bad for children who don't have good relations with their parents. It would be bad for parents who don't have good relations with their kids. It would be bad for, uh, it would be bad in lots of ways, right? So they're not, there's never going to be a one size fit all care policy. But the more that you can make care about, yes, as you said, belonging and about kinds of institutions where people are able to give engaged care in ways that make sense in their own world, the better off you'll be. Lots of communities in the United States have been doing what, you know, now that there's a pandemic, people say, oh, look, neighbors are taking food to their neighbors. Well, you know, that has gone on in relatively poor communities in this country forever. Mm-hmm. That's what people do. Uh, one, of, one of the ways to make this better would be to encourage and to create the conditions where that kind of caring work, we're not worrying all the time about, will I have enough for me? But do I have enough to share? Becomes the basis for people having an, an, a relationship with others. Uh, I'll give you another example of a, of a care uh, situation that I thought was just stunningly brilliant. After, um, I remember back in the 1990s, America was closing down military bases because of the peace dividend that was going to come because the Soviet Union um, had collapsed. And military bases were closing down. One military base decided that it would do two things. One, it would provide the barracks that had been used to house soldiers for poor members of the community. And it would also house some of that housing for senior citizens who had low incomes under the provision that the senior citizens would agree to become the foster parents of the young children who belong in the poorer families. What a win-win. I mean, usually we don't know people from other generations in our society who aren't in our own household. Children don't meet older people. Older people don't meet children unless you're in the same family. But this provision made the older folks feel valued, and they actually did have some tangibly useful things to do to help those kids have another adult who loved them and took care of them. That kind of creative solution to several problems, senior housing, housing for the poor, turned out to be um, the kind of caring solution that we could come to if we stopped thinking both, uh, you know, in global terms and in only, you know, economic, physical terms, thinking of policy as something that happens up at the high level of um, 
manipulating things and think instead of what might organically grow out of communities, if you want to use that language, communities of belonging. That's a particularly great example of uh, the kind of creativity that can happen um, when we recognize our interdependence. And it seems like that you know you talked about the opportunity that COVID nineteen sort of uh, may be generating, even while it's obviously, of course, generating substantial um, devastation. We could think about ways in which uh, federal policy could make it a lot easier to be creative in that way, and a lot harder to 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 be creative in that way. But uh, philosophically. Um, it seems to me that the, the orientation might, uh, the orientation brought by COVID nineteen might make it a little more possible for people to see why it's important to be creative in that way to facilitate care. You talked about the distribution of care. Um, can you can uh, this this distribution is it important? You know, one might think you know it's important for everybody to get the care they need, uh, and for caregivers to be well supported in providing the care they need. Um, but as part of the distribution as well, the ability for everybody to spend time doing a certain kind of care work. How much of a division of labor in the provision of care work is appropriate, or is there certain sorts of care work that you might think a fundamental way of thinking about whether or not we're doing well as a society is whether we give everybody the opportunity to perform certain kinds of care work. What do you think about that? Well, Jennifer Nadelsky in her book, Part-Time for All, makes the argument that political leaders who have never done any care work should be disqualified or at least, um, if not disqualified formally, at least looked upon as people who probably aren't really yet qualified to do political work either. And I think there's something valuable to say about how much, if everyone participated in care work, it helps us to... Um, have a better sense of what it means to be completely human. People who can just dismiss their care work to others um, have a cavalier attitude towards others, towards life, towards the world. Um, One phrase I've been using a lot lately is, what it would help is if everybody could clean up after themselves. And even that is not, you know, something that everybody does. But if you cleaned up after yourself, if you realized how much of a mess you're making, (laughs) then it becomes um, a little easier for you to see what the stakes are in your own life and in other people's lives and trying to care well. So, yeah, I think it would be a great thing. You know, I don't like to use the language of distribution itself because it is kind of an economistic language to talk about care. But we would, in a society where we were thinking more justly about one another, try to think about our caring responsibilities and our caring needs to somehow balance out for each of us and balance out for all of us over the course of our lifetimes. I mean, I definitely think it's the case to part and partial of putting care or certain sorts of neglected care work central is to make it very clear that it's uh, something to be uh, sort of praised or valorized no matter who does it. Um, And that some people might be get incentives that discourage them from performing care work either because they're they're not the person providing it uh, or that they're, you know, are busy or that someone would be better at it. Well, some people would be better at it than others. Everyone can do some adequately and everybody can learn to do what care work they have to do better. One final policy question I have, an issue I spend a lot of time discussing in the book, concerns the impact of different approaches for meeting the care needs of young children. So once we recognize all the reasons why those needs won't be well met in our current political economy, at least with a to each their own approach, uh, what is the the best alternative? Uh, Is it policies that uh, support and make possible longer and paid family leave time to enable people to better care for the children in their own household? Another approach is is to make it uh, more paid. That is to say, you know, like our goal here is instead to provide child care publicly and to support it and to support it well. You know, the idea being that uh, one of the sort of side effects uh, of of extended uh, family leave as an approach, and certainly not a problem in the United States where we have almost no provision for this, um, mm-hmm. is uh, is that people don't return to the workforce. 
um, if they've done that live. By contrast, uh, a publicly provided trial care tends to both uh, better help and meet certain sorts of care needs, um, but also tends to encourage uh, more egalitarian sort of economic outcomes. Does the does the uh, sort of ethics or politics of care approach point us in any direction on these alternative ways of addressing care needs and the related uh, gender inequalities? For me, um, being interested in democratic care, we would move in the direction of more public provision. And here's why. Um, Not only does care, um, I mean, families all care differently, but we have fairly good evidence to suggest that the more wealthy your family, the better able you are to care. Children who grow up in um, higher income households in the U.S. hear more language than kids who grow up in poor households. And think about the provision, how that transfers into um, a democratic society. When, when kids enter school, even at age three or four or five, there's already a difference in how much exposure they've had to different ways of life, different foods, different everythings, right? So the more we could make care um, helpful to all children, um, develop every child's capacities as fully as possible, the I think the better we would be. Now, that doesn't mean everyone would be in school all day. It would mean that all children would have some access to really high-quality early education. I mean, there are, there's an expertise to doing this well, and it wouldn't be bad if that were evenly distributed throughout the society. So if I had to pick, I would pick that way, not for... Um, n- not only for the reasons of I think it's better care, but also for the reasons that if you want to live in a democracy that's caring, you have to make caring democratic citizens. That means you have to start with children, teaching them what it means to share and care with others. You have to teach them um, how to be respectful of one another. And I think the earlier that kinds of those kinds of education start, probably the better. That's excellent, Joan. And of course, the, the public provision of childcare, I mean, serves so many other and it makes it easier for people to continue to labor in a way to support their family. If they have to move to get a job, it makes it easier, right? One of the sort of challenges of assessing good jobs is the fact that in order to do so, you would have to, um, you know, sort of, uh, you would have to leave the built-in networks that provide that care. Now, we don't want to, you know, say that people are compelled to do that, but they'd be much more free to do with the public provision. It combats uh, uh, inequalities that remain from our gender division of labor and, and a number of other things. Excellent. That's right. Yeah. Well, Joan, thank, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to, to talk. I, I really learned a lot in our discussion and uh, it was wonderful. Uh, thanks. Thanks for joining me. It's been my pleasure, Josh. Thank you for asking me to come and speak to your podcast. This has been Pandemic Ethics. My thanks to the great Joan Tronto, professor of political science at the University of Minnesota and author of Caring Democracy. Thanks also to my colleague Craig Matarese in the musical collective Algo Underground for the soundtrack to the podcast. For more information on this episode, including complimentary readings and a preview of upcoming episodes, go to pandemic-ethics.com. Until next time, be well and stay safe.